0: AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: Hello, welcome to at and Track for March 17th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by a special guest, Brian Foster from Dambella. and Brian, you're the CTO. Can you tell us a little more about yourself?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I've been at the Ball about two years. Um, I started my career at uh, Symantec Corporation. I spent actually 21 years there. Wow. Uh, I started when I was 13.
1: So you would know endpoint security I, I know well.
2: endpoint very well. I spent, uh, spent a long time on the endpoint. Uh, actually, after Symantec, I spent five years at McAfee. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, another endpoint antivirus company, and then in 2013, actually came to Novell to be the chief technology officer.
1: Oh, so, great! Well, welcome. We really appreciate you, you coming to here. here today. Did
2: you come from California today? No, actually, I flew. Uh, I have an apartment and an office in Atlanta, so I flew there yesterday, and okay. I just flew up for the day from Atlanta.
1: All right, so. great. Well, we're, we're very glad to have you here, glad and to be here. I think we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about endpoint security yeah, a little bit later on. I'm hoping to join
2: in a lot of the talks and stuff. I mean, I want to talk endpoint a little bit. What's you know, I, I, the, I'm, at, I'm on the network now. You know, which is I think my appropriateness for this this uh, session. Mm-hmm. But a lot of history on the endpoint, and a lot of interesting things going on in that area. Yeah, and I'd be curious to get the panelists and, and have a discussion about it. Yeah, so. looking forward to it.
1: Uh, yeah, that whole area is evolving in terms of how it gets used it and, sure uh, and the function it performs yeah. for us. And regular Matt Kaiser, welcome, Matt. How's it going? <laughs> it's going well. Thanks. And uh, Jim Clausen online, welcome, Jim. Hey guys. <laughs> And I'm Brian Rexroad, and we'll get right back into it here. And I just wanted to do a little of a sort of a brief advisory here just to get sort of things uh, rolling a bit. Uh, you know, it's tax season, and, uh, of course, nobody likes to do their taxes. But there is a motivation to do it a little bit earlier than you might have done it otherwise. You know, the IRS has come out with a, uh, what they call a taxpayer guide to identity theft. And basically what they're pointing out is that you need to be careful about identity theft as it relates to your tax filing. There has been, and I think the peak was really last year. There was a sort of a peak in fraudulent tax filings that were taking place, particularly in federal returns. And then there was a uh, sort of an incident this year that was uh, detected. I think that actually, I think TurboTax had brought to the to the to light around filings on state returns. And basically, what these uh, these fraudsters are doing is they're filing a return before the uh, the legitimate user can file, and obviously they're gonna they're gonna bake the numbers a little bit so they get a nice big return back, and then you might see that subsequently. So it's a form of identity theft. In order to file a return, you have to sell, have a Social Security number. Now, I read an article that suggested that perhaps TurboText might have been at fault in a sense that. Maybe information had been stolen from TurboTax. I personally, you know, there, I don't think there was any evidence to suggest that. There's a good possibility that end users may have been infected. Maybe previous users of TurboTax, or even using other products, probably had information on there if they got infected on their computer that would basically give uh, attackers access to that information. So uh, the advice here basically is to uh, make sure. That you're protecting, particularly if you're using using your own computer, that you're protecting that computer and the information about your tax filings and also personal information like social security number to help protect against fraud. But I think one of the probably the best ways to protect is to file as early as possible. Maybe I'm providing this advice a little bit late, but (laughs) it's still well before April 15th. Uh, File as early as possible and then to uh, hopefully uh, subvert any uh, attempts to uh, file on your behalf.
2: Yeah, but I may add two things to that. I think, yeah. you know, one, uh, IRS is never going to call you, right? I mean, I think, um, I don't know if you get those radio spots out here. I, I live in, on the West Coast. We get those radio spots. Mm-hmm. And my, my mom is recently living by herself, and mm-hmm. she's gotten one of those calls. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I preach to her all the time. So, she so these do are do fraudsters it. trying to get information from They're trying from to call you, you to, to say, hey, we're at the IRS, we're trying to verify your claim. Mm-hmm. You know, can you give me your social security number and some other information about you, which is basically ways of getting her identity data. Um, so, but the IRS doesn't call, right? They're, they're still going to mail you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're still somewhat behind the times. Um, well, it's
1: it's it's a lot more cost
2: effective to send
1: a send a
2: letter, than to have yeah. somebody actually
1: spending time well, on the phone.
2: And you know, credits to people that think the government's that on it to think that you know that they're they're going to be calling you even before April fifteenth for taxes that are due April fifteenth. So <laughs> It's a little bit of common sense. Uh, and then the second thing that I think, just I would recommend everybody to do, and everybody in my circles, I, I tell to do, is is you know put the seven year credit block on your credit. Yeah, you know, there's you know, that adds one extra step anytime you apply for credit, mm-hmm. but all that extra step is they're going to call you wherever you're at, and say, hey, you're right. applying for credit, is this really you? Mm-hmm. And that is so worth it, you yeah. know, and it's it's an easy step to do. You just have to call one of the agencies, or, or companies to do that, and they can institute it for you. They'll do it seven years at a time. You don't have to worry about it for seven years.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, very good advice. Uh, and yeah. you know that one of the recommendations, and you know, we're providing the link so that you can go actually and see uh, the detailed recommendations from the IRS, but. And one of them is to check your credit report Absolutely. each year, but to put the block into place so that it uh, gives yeah. you better control around it. Absolutely. So you're, you're proactive, That's right. preventative, as opposed to reactive. That's prevention is worth a pound. That's a very good Yeah, very good well, advice. and
3: you, the buddy. idea of filing early is a great one. I, if I could just convince my accountant to get mine done early. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: uh, <laughs> good point there, Jim. Maybe you need to give him a tip. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, when we're all done having fun with filing our tax returns, perhaps we can have fun with CAPTCHA.
0: Which is something I thought no one would ever say. <laughs> yeah. That's probably so, the first
1: time. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were just complaining about it a little bit earlier, so this is actually a nice said, Tell us about it.
0: Yeah, sure. So most people are, are aware of CAPTCHAs, and I'm going to butcher the acronym, but it's a completely automated Turing test to tell computers and humans apart. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Okay, wow, well, uh, uh, it.
1: it's close enough for me. I mean, I, I can understand what it means. Uh, I just when you told say you what it that one. Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> but but everyone's uh, encountered it mostly as an anti-fraud technique. You know, mm-hmm. you're signing up for an account, ask you to type in a couple of letters you see in a, a garbled field or in a photograph, mm-hmm. um, and usually they they're they're okay. You take a few seconds to do, but they're never pleasant. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're downright like, frustrating, where you're taking a look and you're saying, is that an R? Is that a twisted N? Is that exactly. an I that's it, it, really twisted? Yeah. Is it a case sensitive? Or a letter? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> is it case sensitive? You know, right. So I think the, 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 it's the right move what we're seeing here with this, with mm-hmm. FunCAPTCHA, where they've turned it into a game. So basically, the, the things they'll ask you to do is click on one of two buttons to rotate a circle so that the dog is facing right ways up. Mm-hmm. Pick the picture of the woman out of the picture of, of several human beings, all of them are male, one is a woman. And that's the th- sort of thing that you can't really easily write an algorithm against at this point. Mm-hmm. So I think it's 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 effective, and at the same time, it's not overly painful to click a few times or drag a picture into a box. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm all for this. I know there are lots of people out there who are frustrated about you know trying to solve these things, especially if they've got. And I think you were talking about it earlier. You know, if, if your eyesight isn't good enough uh, to distinguish mm-hmm. these characters from each other, right. then
2: you know it. Yep. It makes sense. I'm always on the lookout for things that are helpful my mom not have to call me because she's trying to do something on her computer. Right. This is one of those, right? Because you know, I, the, some of those CAPTCHA things are just awful. Some right. of this goes just user interface design. Whoever designed the CAPTCHA I don't think did a very good job. That's what I like about some of these fun CAPTCHAs that are coming out is you're actually taking some people with from a user-centered design perspective thinking about how do I still solve the same problem but in a way that you, humans can get through it quicker, mm-hmm. You know, recognizing the whole goal of this is to separate humans from computers. Mm-hmm um but i I know we all have probably horror stories of captures that we had to enter three or four times just because we couldn't make out the characters um it's good to see that some some good old-fashioned innovations taking place in in that area
0: yeah i think what what you would usually see is someone who's trying to take it from the aspect of how do i make this capture harder for a computer to solve right and at the same time what you're doing is you're degrading the experience for human beings Mm -hmm. as well Well, uh, it becomes impossible
1: i I could see some extensions to this so you know you, you Describe some relatively simple things that humans would be able to do to, it would be hard to get a computer to do at least in the current stage, but I could see having the intellectual challenge option in the captions you know like so you actually get a learning experience you know oh, turning the picture is too easy give me
0: give me a maze to do or you know. This <laughs> would probably be really, really easy for a computer to solve. All right? Well,
2: I actually think, not just as a subject, I think captures are going to go away eventually because yeah. of the sensors in your computers, in your devices, they're going to be able to sense that there's a human there, you know, and through other types of things, either your you know your eyes or mm-hmm. your voice. Um, you're not even going to need to have to have captures to verify that that's a human, not a computer. Right. Um, so long term, I hope captures go away, but I'm glad mm-hmm. now that at least we're going to get some examples of where, if you have them, are easier to get through.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, clearly a step in the right direction. Absolutely. So, it's cool. So, after we're fatigued by trying to solve our captures, (laughs) Brian, I guess, uh, you know, as security analysts, we run into uh, our own sort of fatigue. Maybe you can introduce this topic for us.
2: Yeah, no problem. Some of this, um, a couple topics I was hoping we get a chance to talk about are are kind of just my own reflections on my career. I mean, I'm starting to get gray hair and my, my scraggly little beard here it seems to get gray every day. And so I've long and tooth in the security industry, I have 21 years at Symantec, five at McAfee. So 26 years right there. And, and I've built a lot of products or worked on teams that built a lot of products over the years. And every one of those products has spit out alerts. You know, mm-hmm. and, and are, you know when you're building a product, you're thinking, hey, I've got a dedicated human that's just looking at my products alerts and that's all they ever do. But that's not the case, right? Security analysts are looking at, you know, 20 to 30 products, they're all spinning out alerts. Mm-hmm. And it's created this, this syndrome that's out there today called alert fatigue. And we've built products that also spit out alerts to try to deal with the alert fatigue, right? The whole, you know, part of the whole reason why SIMs are around, you know, uh, is to to gather all these alerts and all these other products, Mm -hmm. try to make sense of those, and then send you new alerts Mm -hmm. that relate to all those other alerts. And so this this issue of alert fatigue is just uh, something that we spend a lot of time at, you know, trying to solve from a industry perspective. Mm -hmm. And and it's just it's getting crazy. I mean, we we um, did a study at the end of last year. Where they went out to about a hundred enterprises and looked at, you know, how many alerts do you get on a weekly basis? How many alerts do you actually look at on a weekly basis? Mm-hmm. And this was important because you know, um, one of the large retail breaches that occurred a couple years ago, about a year and a half ago, they actually received alerts of the malware that compromised their point of sale machines, but they didn't do anything about it. Right. Why? Well, it goes back to the subject of this Ponemon study, which yeah. is that hey, on average, these the the, the companies in this study received about seventeen thousand alerts a week. Mm-hmm. Of the 17,000, only 20% of them were deemed reliable, meaning they'd written their own correlation rules and other things to weed out 80%. And of the 20%, only 4% of the overall total ever actually got looked at by a human. Mm-hmm. So they're having to play a little bit of a gambling game, a little bit of a dangerous game here of picking out all these alerts I'm getting, which are the ones I'm really going to have humans go look at. Why? Yeah. I've only got a few humans. Some of my experience tells me these alerts are more meaningful than others. Mm-hmm. But as we've seen in the news, unfortunately, is that a lot of those alerts that you know are real, that you know, are getting through, and nobody's doing anything about it. So that's yeah. kind of this alert fatigue. And I, you know, yeah. to what extent you guys see this, and you know I, th- you're absolutely
1: it. right. I, it the same, you know, it, it's sort of an analogy, and I think I've used this analogy before. It's kind of like looking for your keys under the light. <clears> you know, because it, you know you dropped your keys over there somewhere else. The, the, those are the tough alerts, right? The ones that are probably meaningful, but you don't know what to do about it. The tendency is to look where you can see yeah. and to where you know how to do something about it. You know, I can be looking around and hear it, And it's, a, it's one of those scenarios that I think you run into yeah. is that the sort of the mundane everyday type activities, those alerts are the ones that get addressed because people know how to address them. Exactly. And the complicated ones, it's like, well, there are lots of them. And yeah. so how do you pick out from the lots of the other ones yeah. are you gonna choose to work on? And uh, it, it's exactly as you said. And yeah. so I, I think, we should work together because I think there are two areas. For example, one of the things that we see today is there. It's not just alerts; it's like reports. Yeah. There's a threat report, that threat report. There's a threat yeah. news article, and <laughs> yeah. absorbing all of that. That's even a, another challenge that yeah. creates its own sort of fatigue. How do you manage it? How do you? It really requires some human uh, interaction associated with it. And yeah. then, as we uh, dig into the uh, the alert management itself, it becomes well, is this are, do we really have a thousand problems here, or is it really five problems? And it's a matter
2: of figuring out
1: the connection between these different things. Yeah, be
2: able to automatically identify what's the what's the signal in the noise mm-hmm. is is critical, and I think that's that's the trick, and that's where I think the industry, both from a technology, but also process and people perspective, we're going to get better mm-hmm. uh, because we have to. And you hit know on one thing to, to which is true. It seems like Every other startup right now is a threat intelligence company that has some unique view of the internet and threats, and and so we do have this now overload of all this threat intelligence. Mm-hmm. We almost need some threat intelligence feeds that's making sense of all the other threat intelligence feeds. Right. You know, and that's a challenge. And once again, I think you know industry is going to solve that with technology, trying to find. But mm-hmm. at at the end of the day, it's also there's going to be a human element to that as well because you you do have to you do have to apply some experience in the space, human experience, to say this threat from this feed plus this feed means really this mm-hmm. you know and if you could productize that you can go make a lot of money yeah so. absolutely true you know it's
1: interesting you mentioned it there there are actually so many niche threat activities mm-hmm. taking place now yep. there's one we know denial of service attacks there was one we actually talked to that they their focus is fraud in gaming yeah okay just game fraud you yep. know theft of identity you know gaming credentials and yep. it's like you can actually build a business out of that <laughs> well it's, that's funny so
2: there's actually a, a a company in China named Kingsoft that makes an online game they very popular they built their own antivirus company just because their you know gamers were getting hacked for their credentials mm-hmm. yeah. so they built an antivirus product that they sold to their existing you know users of their product with the sole intent of just protecting their game mm-hmm. but it's that same you know that same relationship you know as I've got yeah. these gamers they've, they've spent all their lives and have this digital currency that's worth real money, and for some some people, mm-hmm. and protecting it's very important. So,
1: yeah, good. So uh, it, it's a little tangential, but even just evaluating threat intelligence companies, yeah. one of the very important and subtle things to dig into and understand is what is their niche. What is how are they learning about the threat intelligence? Are they gaining it from a number of uh, at external sources and sort yeah. of bringing things together, or yeah. sometimes they have certain technical capabilities that really contribute to their yeah. their inputs. And uh, really getting a handle or a, a, an appreciation for where they fit in and how it applies to your organization, That's right. I think is very important, so.
2: Yeah, and, and just one other point on that. I mean, I think um, there's this notion of a detection bias, which mm-hmm. is um, a lot of these alerts, going back to the, the other topic of alert fatigue, a lot of these alerts you're getting are from security products that knew to send you an alert. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're not sending your alerts obviously on things they don't know to alert about. And so, when you go back to threat intelligence feeds and trying to analyze which ones are more important than others, which ones are more valuable, is understanding the source is critical. And is that unfiltered, for example, network data that that's built off of? Or is it coming through filtered firewalls and IPSs? Right. In which case, you're, you're missing some of the context possibly that was there mm-hmm. originally, you know? And so, like I said, there's a bunch of these little threat intelligence vendors that are all looking at that different ways of differentiating mm-hmm. and being unique. But understanding the base of that is very critical. So I totally agree.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Damballa was really one of the groundbreakers in this whole area. Started out with DNS analysis and, that's right. and getting some real insights in how right. botnets were operating. That, that's right. in, in ways that most other organizations really had no insight into. So
2: uh, absolutely, I mean, in understand that, that unfiltered data, and, and then you know, using that for whatever secret sauce as a company, uh, dabala and others that you use, I, I think is critical. Yeah. So. Very cool.
1: So I guess to get to some of the more, uh, uh, I guess, day-to-day activities, I guess, Jim, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the patching activities in in iOS.
3: Last, I guess it was last week, um, Apple pushed out iOS 8.2 for iPhone. And the the big thing in there was they fixed a vulnerability that... uh, if you were sent a specific type of sms message could reboot your phone so that was the the big security fix that i'm aware of in in ios 8.2 so if you if you're using an iphone and you got prompted to to apply that update i would go ahead and do it
1: sounds like a good idea so it, if I can understand a little more uh, specifically here, it, was that a potential? Did that have potential to do other things, or was it just a sort of a denial of service vulnerability? It,
3: it was. It was mostly a denial of service attack. It, um, it was a. It was a special SMS message, a, a flash SMS or a class zero SMS, um, and that. Uh, as far as I can tell, as far as I've been able to find, uh, folks writing about it, all it could do was restart your phone, but that still could be annoying.
1: It certainly can be annoying. I my, my <laughs> wife was complaining the other day that she was trying to navigate, She was trying to pick me up. I was getting the car serviced. <laughs> her, her phone wasn't working the way it was supposed to, so
2: that's. Uh, well, What's interesting about this this vulnerability I guess two things one this 8.2 update is the update everybody needs to get if you get an iWatch so all one five percent of you, how many people are going to go get mm-hmm. the, the iWatches or whatever they're calling them?
1: So it's a feature update. It's as well. a feature
2: update to, to enable that. But this is interesting. Like um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with those Angie alerts on the freeways. Like if if, it, mm-hmm. if kids abducted, they send it. In. And if you ever notice, you get those alerts. And maybe flash floods if you live out where there's mm-hmm. flooding. Yep. You'll get these alerts on your phone, which pop up differently than your normal messaging app. Well, that's the messaging service that this vulnerability took advantage of on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the messaging service where there's a vulnerability that you know it could cause your phone to reboot and reboot. And that's the that's the vulnerability that they closed mm-hmm. with the update. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's interesting, I, I, you know, you didn't know your phone had this messaging service unless you received one of those Angie alerts or one of those flash floods. You know, And it always
1: come somewhere between 2 and 3 in the morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's got that really annoying sound yeah, associated with it. And <laughs> exactly. It just goes off yeah. at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it really uh, will
2: tend to make you jump out of your bed.
1: But it is actually a good service. I, oh, absolutely. I, I it's still totally it. useful.
2: Interesting. It's just until you get one, you didn't know it's there. You know, right. you know, what do you yeah, do with absolutely. this? You know, my phone broken is, you know.
0: So, so my, yeah, my big good. question is how does one send these sorts of messages? I assume that it's not for everyone to use. Otherwise, I, I, I imagine That's that everyone's yeah. phone would be, getting spam with these day in, day out. You know, yeah. If you're gonna get regular spam, why not push it past the, the regular notification mechanism? Why not make it appear on somebody's screen and you know, right in their face?
1: I think you just created some homework for yourself there. I, I, might have. Have. I, would, assume, yeah. I would
2: assume ATT knows all about that.
0: Somebody's got to. So I'm sure
1: somebody in ATT knows all about that. It just doesn't happen to be uh, between the, right. the, yeah. the three of us here. So yeah, I think you've got some homework there, Matt. We can talk about that Fine. sometime soon. I think it would be an interesting discussion. So Brian, we, uh, we, we started out kind of at the very beginning talking a little bit about endpoint security. Yeah, yeah. Let's dig into it a little bit more. What, what, what are your
2: observations about yeah, endpoint you know, security? I, I could fill up hours talking about endpoint. You sure know, so you I spent my career on the endpoint. Um, I actually went to ball to get away from the endpoint, believe it or not. And, and some of that was on the macro level, was just, you know, I, I, my history is building system-level antivirus software on Windows. Mm-hmm. And back six years, six, seven years ago, 90% of your endpoints that IT managed in an enterprise were Windows on Intel. Mm-hmm. And if you look today, you know, that's 30 to 40 percent. Why? Yeah. Because of iPhones and because of Android, um, and even a resurgence of macOS, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and from a software development perspective, it's it's harder to do what we were doing on Wintel on those other platforms. In mm-hmm. some cases you can't. You can't do that on iOS, for example. And so just the ability to secure those devices and write the same kind of security software is harder. But then the the you know the the core issue is then. Uh, you also help from a business model perspective. You saw security software going to a free model. You know, mm-hmm. so long reason I went to I thought network is where security is going to come from, and where I think you know you're going to get security. Um, and so I came to Nabala, You know, but but as I keep very close to my largest customers, I keep hearing them say, "I'm having to go back to the endpoint. Why? Mm-hmm. Because my employees are leaving my network and they're not always on my network. And right. although I control my network and I want to put security in my network, I still have to go." F- secure these guys while they're out on the road, and they're getting mm-hmm. hacked on the road. And this came to mind, the reason why I brought this up for this, this session was uh, we recently looked at our customers at Damballa and found when we find malicious files, we scan them with like 20 antivirus engines. Mm-hmm. And the, within an hour of us, you know, the first hour of us detecting something, 70% of the antivirus solutions out there don't detect it. Right. And I think common sense would tell us, okay, that we know that everybody's been saying AB's dead. If you're using it for prevention, you're, you're mm-hmm. doing it wrong, all those things. But what was surprising to me was that that after a month, still 40% were missing it. After it took a full six months before the full list of antivirus companies we're looking at, we're catching up with everything we're seeing. Right. So I still I go back and I say, on one hand, I hear, you know, CISOs for very large companies saying I'm having to go back to the endpoint. On the other hand, I'm here saying the top 20 antivirus companies are still aren't on the ball, you know. And, and of course, the the, the answer has been if you go look at where there's a lot of innovation, there's a lot of investment in the market today. There is. You know, 10 new endpoint companies that have popped up with next-gen endpoint solutions. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting. You know, I have a lot of yeah. experience in this. I'm curious what you guys see and your perspectives on it. Um, it seems to me that that's McAfee and Symantec, maybe Sophos and Kaspersky Trend in some cases. They're markets to lose because they're there already, mm-hmm. but, uh, but they're not doing a good job. <laughs> and you think it's been 10, 15 years that this issue has been becoming prevalent. Yeah. You think that, that by now they've done something.
1: I, I don't even know where to start on this because I think there are a lot of aspects of this there is, that we yeah. could certainly discuss. One is that uh, clearly the, the traditional signature-based analysis isn't working too well. That if you have to know about every piece of malware, it's a problem. And yeah. so if you look at some of the alternatives that are coming onto market, they're really looking at they're looking at it in the, in the Inverted approach. That is, application whitelisting is sort yeah. of a, a way to look at it. That's right. So that when you see an application that you don't know about, you just kind of raise that as a flag or at least suspicious, and then you can kind of focus on what it's doing as a, as a potential uh, as a potential threat. That's a good. Idea. And so, I think in the mobile space, because the application markets are so much better controlled, yeah. that that is a greater, much better opportunity. <laughs> that right. is, you're looking for the. My, the unusual anomaly as opposed to the onslaught of so many different new versions of malware that are coming on. So right. I think that's one aspect of this. Another piece that I kind of, uh, and, and again, I think it, this kind of points a little bit to the mobile space, is that the, uh, the security controls in the Windows environment grew out of basically, I think, bailing wired and Band-Aids in a sense. Yeah. Whereas the, the notion of, and if you look at, like uh, the, the Linux environment or the Unix yeah. type environments, there was more of a security notion from the very roots. And if we look at Windows way back, it was a, a DOS operating system. It was intended as a, for a single user isolated from the network, you know, except for maybe a modem dial up. Yeah. And, uh, and so it didn't have the same kinds of threats. And then threats started to, to emerge, you know, through floppy disks and things like that. And as time progressed, we started to have to build in protections. And NT was like the big, you know, trusted core kind of protection thing. And then multimedia kind of eroded that, I think a little bit as well. So I I think part of it has been finding that balance between security and not. Whereas with the mobile devices, they got to kind of start from a clean slate and say, you know, let's build in some protections. The big piece being, if you get a clean app on there, it's not as big of a threat. You don't have disk drives connecting to them so often. So you have, I think, some better protections around a mobile yeah, device I, that we I think need.
2: I totally agree. I mean, I think, um, so once again, at uh, you know, uh, Damballa, we have a lot of network visibility. We see about 50% of North American mobile data traffic. And mm-hmm. 99.9% of the malware we see on mobile data traffic is T- PCs tethered to a mobile device, you might mm-hmm. imagine. And we see a, a little bit of Android malware, and we see almost no iOS malware based right. on our visibility. Right. Um, however, if you go to Eastern Europe or if you go to Asia, specifically where these walled gardens, these app stores aren't uh, enforced and prevalent, mm-hmm. you see mobile malware absolutely g- growing yeah. like gangbusters, it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And true. so certainly the approach that that with the app stores for the mobile has has helped prevent bad apps from distributing. And, and distribution is a key part of a, of a, mm-hmm. a threat actor's economic business model for right. making money off malware. Is they got to get it out there, and if you can't get it out there on enough mobile devices, you can't make money off. Well, in Asia, you can parts of Europe you can because of the the, the lack of the app stores, if you will. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's that's definitely solving it. And I I do think what's going to happen is, I mean, McAfee has a whitelisting solution, for example, I know, because I I, I acquired Mm -hmm. it when I was at McAfee. So I think that those things are happening, and I I think that, you know, so endpoint security is not going to go away. You know, and I guess the way I would sum it up, and I'll I'll leave it at, is uh, I saw a CISO for one of the large financials recently talk at an event, and he said, Hey, yeah, I know my antivirus isn't doing much, but I'm not going to be the first guy that's going to take AV off my machines All and right. replace it with something else because I don't want to be the guy that's in front of the you know, congressional subcommittee saying, hey, why, why aren't you running AV? But everybody else is. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. One of those things. So it's. Well, uh, the auditors expect it. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. So there's a need for
2: new investment in it. I think, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, and you know, the scenarios I think are important are the, the, the roaming user is still very key. Mm-hmm. I, I know at, at my company, half our employees never get on our network you know, and you still need to secure their activities and their lives online, and I think that, uh, so there's a presence of yep. there's still a need for input.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. It,
2: it,
1: you know, another perspective perhaps, or perhaps another trend, um, in an enterprise context, now this, uh, I don't think this applies as well, or and, um, not as easily, in yeah. the consumer context, but, or you know, the, the home, uh, there, there is actually a, a relationship, but in any case, in an enterprise context, they tend to be targeted by the advanced Attackers, yeah, advanced yeah. threats. And in that kind of environment, it's not so much necessarily depending on the endpoint for security, mm-hmm. but putting something in place so that uh, the analysts can evaluate where an advanced threat might be. And so, yeah. what I mean by that is if you can get one sample and then be able to search across an enterprise and see yeah. if there are other drop points that that's an right. advanced attacker has been able to access. It gives yeah. you an opportunity to do, and this is one of the things where I'm a big advocate of threat analysis, yeah. well, partly because it's my job, but and, and that's, <laughs> that's as good. well, but the, uh, partly because it's that, it's that passive perspective, it's that piece that the attackers can't see yeah. how well you're doing it or what you're doing specifically, presuming you protect that environment. Mm. And so uh, by doing that, it gives it, it's that wild card up your sleeve that you get to pull out. And yeah. uh, the ability to go and basically peruse or use the enterprise environment as a means to help uh, dig out the activities that may have been taking place, you're not depending on signatures yeah. as much, but have the opportunity to kind of dig through it.
0: But that's also still reactive. I mean, it they is, have it to it have done something. It is very much reactive. Yeah. It,
1: there's no question about that. It's yeah. reactive, but it's a it's a way to deal with threats in a still reactive sense, but yeah, more effectively the, the, than the, th- otherwise.
2: It's the flock of sheep, or a herd yeah. of sheep. I don't know what you call it, a group of sheep, <laughs> yeah. uh, not, not a sheep herd. Yeah. But it's a sheep herd of sheep defense, which is safest place if you're in a flock of sheep. I like flock sheep. Sounds better. Yeah is if you're in the middle of the flock, the right? Because it's the sheep on the outside edge, so they're gonna get nabbed by a wolf. Mm-hmm. And of course, by that, by the time the wolf nabs the sheep, the, the, the shepherd finds out about it, runs the wolf off. You lost one sheep, it saved the other 99, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's how the security industry has been for a long time, which is we're gonna sacrifice a couple sheep to protect the rest of the, the flock, if you will. And if you're part of the flock, that's great. If you're the sheep that got sacrificed, not so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think that's where, um, you know, uh, a lot of these things are, and you know, we certainly need to find better ways to protect the sheep on the outside as well. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Yeah, very good analogy. Yeah, like no it. problem.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Matt,
1: let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your. Uh, well, t- you tell me about this. I guess it, sometimes, sometimes the flock gets lost. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: this one is is kind of interesting. Um, so it turns out that Google through the Google apps. Platform Mm -hmm. allowed people to, you know, and allows people to register for domains for the sites they're putting together, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, it's a good plan. They're using Enom for the registration, Mm -hmm. Um, but Cisco's Talos team reported that, as of I want to say, 2013, at some point, the Whois protection service ceased to function properly. Now, Mm -hmm. for those who aren't familiar with, you know, Whois protection. Basically, when you sign up for a domain name, you've got to give contact information, say this is my name, this is my address, my phone number, and my email address, mm-hmm. in case you need to contact me for abuse purposes or whatever. And for a long time, you know, when you would sign up, this would be available to anybody. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that spammers would start to you know, dig through these records and grab your email address, grab your phone number, and start using it for whatever purposes they had. Mm-hmm. So someone came up with a bright idea of who is protections or who is privacy services, which means you don't actually put that information out in the public, they give sort of like a, an intermediary step, so you have to still contact the company and say, I have a legitimate use for this information. Please give it to me. I, you know, I have an abuse case to work on.
1: Something more than CAPTCHA. It's, <laughs>
0: it's, 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 a, it's an extra step that prevents, that prevents automation. So in a way, right. you could say that. Right. Um, gotcha. But what it turns out is that at some point in the process for Google Apps, the renewal process was not re-upping that protection service, mm. which you would expect it to happen if, if I said, I wanted to sign up for this and I wanted it to last for three years, every year would go through and check and say, okay, they wanted it, they get it again, mm-hmm. their who is is still protected. At some point that failed. Mm. Now what this means is that, that people's contact information related to these domains was out in the public. Mm-hmm. There's an upside, there's mostly a downside. There's a small upside, which I'll get to. Mm-hmm. The downside is that now you've got this information, and while Google has fixed the problem, Anybody who was watching during that period and trying to, to, to scrape for these inf- this information would have a copy of it historically. So mm-hmm. it's out there and it's not gonna be, you can't put the cat back in the bag. Right. So plenty of people's content information has been leaked. And there's all sorts of, you know, depending on what you were doing with your website, there's all sorts of reasons why this is a terrible, terrible thing. Mm-hmm. For most people, some people don't even care, some people don't sign up for these services, but for some people it's its very important that that identity be, be protected. Mm-hmm. The very the, the very small silver lining in this cloud is that these same services are often used to protect criminal activities. Right, that's right. So, for people who are out there in, in, in the, the realm of analysis of, of criminal activities and, and spam and botnets, this, this is actually an analysis <laughs> boon. <laughs> we
2: we, we use, uh, at Dabala, we use who data as, some, as one of the many ingredients in our analysis trying to find bots mm-hmm. and bad actors, mm-hmm. but uh, you're right. Yep, yep.
0: Yep. And we, we've used the same information as well. It, it is yep. very useful for that purpose. That's right. So, I mean, this—it's—it's it's kind of the big story of the week that this information is now out there in the public. You know, it's been fixed, but for this long period of time, it was—it was sort of a problem. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Well, uh, this is the consequences of leaks. Yeah. This, this is basically <laughs> so, a leak. Yeah. But it's uh, it, you know, by the same token, I know we've run into a lot of cases where that—that uh, that privacy is a, a a little bit of a hindrance in being able to get information that you need about uh... investigating uh... malicious activity uh... hopefully that won't happen again and uh, hopefully some folks have learned some lessons so i guess to uh... sort of uh, transition a little bit here um, i don't think we've had any discussion I did we we did discuss the ios patches and some other patches are coming along or fixes and maybe jim you can tell us a little bit about that
3: yeah uh... this is one that i'm sure we'll be talking about on next week's show because uh, OpenSSL SSL uh, sent out an email to their announced list earlier this week that they will be providing fixes, new versions, on Friday the 19th of March. They have not gone into any detail about what is being fixed other than to say mm-hmm. that it is a high-risk uh, vulnerability that they're patching. Wow. High severity is what they said um so think think something along the lines of um Heartbleed or poodle or freak or something like that is what mm-hmm. my guess is we'll know yeah. we'll know a lot more next week but it's coming so be ready to be patching
1: yeah it's a, you know uh this is a case where when you have these uh these open source projects that are used broadly uh, you know on, on many many different devices it makes the patching, patching process uh, quite complex. That it's a, it's a, a large work factor. Yeah, and, uh, we've so been
3: through that a couple of times already in the last year or two. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so if it, it is serious, you know, edits. Heartbleed was so. significantly more serious than the, the others. Uh, the Poodle, I think, was uh, marketed heavily, uh, but Heartbleed clearly was the uh, more significant vulnerability.
2: So hopefully it's yeah. not quite that bad. Whoever finds market, it, markets it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> right, the
1: yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, hopefully it's, it's not that bad, it. but they do say high severity, so we'll right. we'll see on Friday.
1: Yeah, and so this is a case where it's actually coming from the OpenSSL uh, development organization. Is that correct?
3: Yeah. Well, they've announced that they they've got the patches coming. I'm not sure where the where the vulnerability was reported to them. You know, who gets credit mm-hmm. for finding that. But.
1: You know, I guess one of the things, and I'm not going to be able to help with names here, but one of the, the silver linings around Heartbleed was that it, it helped to realize that some of these open source projects that are used across many different products weren't really getting the security attention that they needed. Yeah. And so, uh, basically, a, uh, an organization was developed to help facilitate that. That's right. And uh, that's, a, I think, a really significant development in the security
2: Long-term, community. Long term, I think that's great. You know, short term I like, you know, I thought this was the advantage of open source is that I'll get something that already has gone through this this review. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, long term I think this is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I am an open user in my off you know, for Nabala. So every time this happens we have to go through and look at it and it's it's extra work. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, long term that's good. Short term yeah. is a painful.
1: Yeah, it's a painful painful to have to go through yeah. the, the cycle of fixing these. But uh, you know can, rest assured there will probably be more of these and so refining the process of patching things associated with OpenSSL recognizing those and being prepared for it is going to be uh, perhaps a good thing in the next year or so and in fact there are some others that uh, we should be paying attention to as well and I think uh, they are trying to get those incorporated as a part of that activity. So let's take a look at the internet weather over the last week or so here and the first item they have here is bytes on source port 161 UDP uh, that simple network management protocol, and we talked about this last week. It was basically the early phase of some denial of service attack activity. As we reported last week, uh, it was actually a, a reflective denial of service attack against a target in China. I think there's some diversity in the targets here. That is, it's, it's changing over time. So the uh, more recent targets, I don't think actually are against China. The more significant aspect here, and to correct a mistake from last week, we're seeing attacks up in the gigabit range. It's not tens of gigabits, but the, the uh, certainly the gigabit range. So that's a significant consideration. That is, we had not seen that previously. So somebody has uh, basically uh, cracked the code here in being able to uh, increase the effectiveness of SNMP-based uh, reflection attacks. So that's significant. You want to pay attention to that. Make sure that you're not exposing SNMP unnecessarily. Uh, but I think most of the, uh, the traffic is coming from uh, uh, some other places. Uh, so in any case, keep an on that, eye on that. Hopefully, this isn't a growing trend. We did see some incre- uh, excuse me, decrease in activity over the last week or so, but um, we're going to need to keep an eye on that. Looking at the top 10 most probed ports, uh, at the top of the list here, port 22 followed by port 23, uh, we're gonna look at some of these a little bit more closely. Port 135 TCP, as we've been seeing a lot of uh, probing activity on that one as well. 443 TCP, 445 TCP, port 80, 8080, that's you know basically web, web proxy. 1900 UDP, that's simple service discovery protocol used in the reflection attack activity. We have a new one here, port 9200 TCP. We'll take a little closer look at that as well. So uh, first drilling into uh, port 135 TCP, this is associated with Microsoft uh, DCE endpoint resolution. I'm showing 90 days of activity here, and as you can see, Traditionally, we had seen an awful lot of activity here. It actually has gone down significantly, so uh, I think that's uh, that's a good thing. Now, overall, all of this activity, regardless of the uh, the volume, is really to a large extent attributable to one organization that's performing this activity. Multiple address- addresses, I think, on the order of dozens of addresses that are, are performing this. The reason that we know it's uh, basically related to the same activity, first of all, that they're kind of registered under the same name. And uh, secondly, the uh, the activity goes down and up together. And so uh, we're, we're still a little unclear what the objective is here. This was actually, Brian, uh, this will be new to you. <laughs> what we had actually been seeing is an as an attempt to basically log in under a particular user credential. So I don't know if they're actually uh, looking for a specific user in this activity but uh, or uh, trying to uh, just really uh, evaluate the presence and the uh, potential vulnerability on this port. This port was pretty much dead on the internet for a while and then uh, this activity really woke it up again. It's been going on for on the order of about a year now. Uh, next item here is scan probes on port 23 TCP, that's Telnet, and uh, we've been tracking this activity. It's really Internet of Things, or well I like to say Internet of Insecure Things, that is those devices that are not well designed for connection to the internet are exposing uh, port 23 Telnet Uh, oftentimes times have a uh, default password that allows the attackers to basically walk into the systems and users are often unaware of that. This is a case where we see another sort of spike in activity uh, in the last few days here where we're seeing a lot more probes. In this case we're not seeing a lot more sources doing that probing and then there's been a decay after that. So normally when we see a lot of sources doing the probing, you know, big increases, we know that's a botnet being controlled together. This is a case where we're seeing just a handful of addresses that are creating a lot more probing activity. There are ways to use botnets to do that, and uh, perhaps that's a possibility, but in this case, um, uh, it certainly isn't showing as lots of different IP addresses. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, uh, regardless of uh, what I just described, port 23 still is at the top of the list by far, uh, followed by port 445 TCP, and then uh, we have some ICMP and a couple of P2P type activities taking place, and then uh, followed by 1900 UDP, and that would be uh, again associated with uh, reflective denial of service attack activity using simple service discovery protocol. Okay, so taking a little closer look at port 9200 TCP, this is associated with Elasticsearch, and I'm going to uh, defer, perhaps Jim, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, Elasticsearch and uh, how that might be related to this activity here.
3: Yeah, Elasticsearch is a. a, Elasticsearch, along with Logstash and Kibana, are three pieces of technology that get used together a lot in log aggregation and making nice dashboards out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, people have used it as a poor man's Splunk replacement. So, 9200 is the REST API port, default REST API port for Elasticsearch. And uh, there was a vulnerability uh, announced in uh, mid-February uh, in versions uh, in, on the 1.4 tree before 1.4.3 and in the 1.3 tree before 1.3.8. So they, uh, there were some new patches out uh, February 11th is when the patches were released.
1: Okay. And so when we look at the activities on here, these spikes in activity, I suspect this is researchers performing that activity. That started right around the third week in February, and then subsequently what we're seeing is a, uh, some increase in the number of sources of activity that are performing this probing. Again, uh, it, a little bit different slant here. It doesn't really look like botnet activity per se, or perhaps this later part really does look like. Uh, botnet activity. Oftentimes it's indicative when you see an increase in source addresses progressively like that, yeah. that there's some type of recruiting operation going on. So uh, we're going to need to keep a close look at that, investigate it a little bit further, and see if there actually is a botnet and perhaps some command control around this uh, this activity that's growing. The numbers here are not large, and so it doesn't really lend itself to suggest that, very conclusively that it's a botnet at this place. We're looking at you know tens of addresses at a time as opposed to You know, some of the botnets were tracking. The port 23 activity was up around 150,000 sources that we saw at any given time. So significant difference here.
3: Yeah, this this vulnerability allows remote code execution. Basically, you can drop Java on the box unauthenticated and execute it. So if you're running Elasticsearch and you have it exposed to the Internet, you really need to be on 1.4.3 or 1.3.8. And uh, uh, just uh, a note here,
1: most of the sources, not all, but most of the sources associated with the activity trace back to three specific ASNs, all of which are in China. So uh, perhaps there's some sort of an outbreak in that space, uh, or perhaps it's deliberate. It's hard to say.
2: Yeah.
1: So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. And you can find threattrack on the ATT tech channel. It's att.com slash threattrack. Uh, it's also available on YouTube as well as iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. and Brian, do you happen to have
2: a Twitter handle? Yeah, I do. It's at BC underscore Foster.
1: Okay, very good. Yeah. So if you'd like to, uh, to uh, acknowledge Brian's participation here, very much appreciate you being here today. Awesome being here. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Jim. Thanks, Matt. I'm Brian Rexroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode, and until then, keep your network safe.
0: The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.